thanks so much for joining Speaking of Making Healthcare Work for You, Different Perspectives and Empowering Solutions. I'm Stephanie Fields, joined by my co-host, Dr. Apoorv Gupta, and today we welcome Dr. Danny Sands, who is an assistant professor of medicine at the Harvard Medical School. He also practices primary care at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center and is the chief medical officer at several companies. And along with him, we welcome his patient, who is Dave DeBroncart. And as I said, he's a patient of Dr. Danny Sands. He's an advocate for participatory medicine, and he is also a survivor of a near-fatal cancer. So thank you both for being here. We really appreciate getting to talk to you both. Pleasure to be here. Can you tell us how you both got connected and what you're working on? I'd like to start by saying that, uh, you know, in our discussion just a few minutes ago, before we started recording, uh, uh, Apoorv mentioned that I was lucky that I found Dr. Sands, because in fact, his proactive pioneering approach to welcoming patient engagement, welcoming me as an active partner, truly helped save my life. And in a sense, that was lucky. But on the other hand, Years earlier, before the cancer came along, I had proactively decided that I wanted to find a doctor and a medical practice that would welcome that because I wasn't happy with how I was being treated at my previous uh, at my previous primary care office. So I asked around, and uh, a mutual friend uh, at the hospital said, "You'd probably like this guy." And boy, did that! strike it rich. And I had been, um, I had trained in uh, clinical informatics at Harvard Medical School and Beth Israel and had uh, worked on creating tools to empower clinicians uh, to take better care of patients. And um, in my own practice, though, I found out that these same tools could be equally empowering to the patients themselves and their caregivers. And uh, that led me to do crazy far out things in the early 90s that included sending emails to patients and exchanging emails with patients. Crazy. And, uh, and uh, that led to my uh, ultimately uh, co-authoring the very first guidelines on, on, on how to do that and why this is important uh, in 1998. Uh, and then that further led to my working with a team of people to create one of the nation's first patient portals to welcome patients, let them see their records online, um, get information, do convenience transactions and so on. So I was uh, all in 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 this area. And I had been, uh, in fact, meeting with a group of people annually to talk about how we could change the future of healthcare. Dave, back to you. My whole career has been in high tech, uh, mostly in graphic arts of all things, but when technology this, this funny, there's this famous internet visionary, Stuart Brand, uh, who created the Whole Earth Catalog, and he was a big fan of the MIT Media Lab when it was brand new, serious visionary. And he has this great line that uh, when a new technology rolls through, if you're not riding the steamroller, you're under it. You know, and the that happened in graphic arts when pre-press turned into desktop publishing. And the people who tried to fight the trend, it's funny, there's a parallel here with patient empowerment. I worked in the industry that did electronic prepress. We were journeymen, skilled, highly trained. And when you people got fonts, it was horrible what you did with them. 
I mean, it's all summed up in the existence of comic sense today, right? So you do uh, and, think I'm funny, right, Dave? Uh, well, you, you called me comic sense. <laughs> wrong, wrong sense, doctor. For heaven's sake. Anyway, the, my point is that there is a belief in any established profession that has legitimate credentials and years of study and so on, that the people without that background could not possibly do a good job, all right? Now, when the assets got into the hand of you people, the public, right? Two things happened. First of all, you started doing whatever you wanted with it. And that's happening in healthcare now as patients get their hands on digital assets, they're setting their own priorities. But the other thing is that the workflows and the tools got reoriented toward the consumer, which we're also starting to see. And as we keep discussing here, you'll see this theme come through that when people have access to information, they can achieve things sometimes mm -hmm. that not everyone thought was possible. Now, there, there will still be idiots. Heaven knows social media and politics have taught us that but new achievements become possible. So many questions that are actually going through my mind right now. I'm not even sure where to begin because I'm thinking, should we start with the end? Uh, I have a question related to how far have we come and is this kind of where you anticipated we would be 22 years later? Uh, but maybe, maybe we'll keep thinking about that. Let's start with Dave, when you did meet Dr. Sands, he was really already out there, you know, kind of pushing the limits of what he could do. What was it that really hit you and struck you? Was it kind of love at first sight as you're sort of describing it uh, when you first met him and said, hey, this is the guy I've been looking for who can really make me a, a, a true active participant. Um, can you help us think through maybe the first couple of encounters there? I'll jump ahead. After after I almost died and a number of things happened and I ended up in the newspaper because I was interested in my medical record, uh, he and I started giving speeches together, literally, which is a whole new kind of participatory medicine, right? And he has a slide he uses. We do speeches separately also, but he has a slide he uses where he shows an email I sent back in 2002 saying, this is really cool. Uh, I'm having a really good customer slash patient experience, right? It really worked out well. It's mm -hmm. funny because after a year as his patient, I had to move to Minnesota for a few years and, and I came back as if by some mystery of the universe. I came back and resumed being his patient literally just a few months before the diagnosis hit. Wow. So I think what, what I'm getting from you then, Dave, is it, it was about the tools then ultimately that helped? It's the, uh, the novel approach to the tools that you ultimately, you know, caused well, the bridge? I, you know, so making healthcare work for you, right? So you have a problem. You know, many of us have serious family stories. I have things going on in my family that are really significant now. Sometimes the system wants you to do something that is just banging your head against the wall and wasting time. Mm -hmm. You think there's got to be a, why does this have to be so difficult? And that's what I experienced with my previous provider. I showed up in Dr. Sand's practice and everything was like modern. No, right? I, I and, think that, oh, I'm sorry, Dave, I didn't mean to. No, go ahead. 
So, so I think that um, the tools are necessary, but not sufficient. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the reason I say that is, I mean, let's look. So the first thing I did to you know, change the way we think about healthcare, in my own practice, I was doing email and trying to get other people to do it. But, but I created our, um, uh, our first clinician's portal. This is just an example, okay? First clinician's portal, which organized all these clinical resources, just like what you would think of a clinician's portal to be today. But this was back in, you know, like 1995. Um, And and I did a really strange thing there, which is that I had a, a part of the portal that was just about patient resources. Now, why did I do that? Well, I did that because I wanted, there were two reasons. One is I wanted to make clinicians aware of resources they, they could prescribe to their patients. Mm-hmm. And the other is I actually had a sign up in my examination room saying, hey, while you're waiting for me, uh, take a look at these websites in my exam room. So I let patients sit at my computer. But, but, but that is fine, it's good. And if you're a, a physician or a clinician who really thinks this is a good thing to be doing with patients, you're gonna do that. But if you're not, you're gonna say, I'm, you're never gonna look at those pages. You're never gonna prescribe a web, website for patients. Let's look at uh, a patient portal, okay? Patient portals are in many practices now because there've been federal incentives to put these portals into practices. But if a physician does not tell patients about the portal, if a physician does not answer a patient's emails, well, then there's no value in it, right? So this requires a change of attitude. It is the culture, it's the attitude that we have to change as well. The tools are nice and they facilitate it. Mm-hmm. And frankly, on the patient side, you know, patients, uh, these tools make it easier for patients to get engaged in their health, but they don't have to use those tools. Right. And, and on the patient side, they, you can have an e-patient and an e-patient is a patient who's engaged, educated, enlightened, empowered. You can have an engaged patient who is not using technology. The technology makes it a heck of a lot easier for sure. Mm-hmm. So I think that's why this is a cultural shift and it's a shift in both the patient and in the clinician. I was going to ask you now the just like you were saying there are portals in virtually every system and on one hand as a patient it's kind of frustrating because there's every single different provider has their own portal and then you have to set up in that but they all use them very differently too. You know, some of them, like you said, are pushing people to them and actually really providing a lot of resources and other ones aren't doing anything with them. But beyond that, and the differences as a provider, how do you tap into different people? Because you're treating a wide range of people, presumably. So some people aren't going to have this technology. Some people are going to have it and be very interested in it. Some people are going to be more adept at it. So how do you leverage the technology to get the best out of it for everybody across the scope that you're treating? Yeah, that's a really important question, Stephanie. And uh, in in the early days, when I was just talking about email, I would tell uh, doctors, groups of doctors, hey, look, don't don't fire your phone staff. And it's the same thing is true today. You know, we, we need to accommodate patients with a, a diversity of uh, comfort levels or access to technology, literacy levels, health literacy levels, languages, and so on. So, so the, way, uh, the, the way I think about this is that I would, my end goal is for every patient to be fully engaged. 
and I want them to all be e-patients. But everybody starts at a different place. And we've got to meet patients where they are and just help them get a little bit more towards that goal. This is a, I, I, I ascribe to the, I, I, I um, use the model of behavior change called the Prochaska model, which is what we use when we're trying to get people to adopt any behavior change, like quitting smoking or quitting drinking or exercising or whatever. So move them to that next phase, one step closer to the goal. So yeah, we have to meet patients where they are. We have to say, look, if this is what you're interested in, we have this. Let me give you an example. Um, some patients like patient portals because they can communicate with me. They can send me a message anytime they want, which, which is great. That's where they get the value. And I have one uh, elderly patient, Davis heard me talk about this, he's, he's deceased now, but uh, he, I, I, sent, I asked all my patients what they thought about this technology and just what can we quote you. And he basically talked at length about how this is a lifeline to him because he's isolated, he's got chronic conditions and it's so on. And it was about that messaging, even though he didn't do it all that often. But for other patients, it's about getting an appointment quickly, right? It's getting those prescription renewals, whatever it is. Maybe for others, it's education. So everybody's got something they can find. I, I just think that the portal is a great platform for that. But Stephanie, you also bring up another important issue, which is that the portal has laid bare the fact that we do a terrible job with um, health information exchange in this country. Uh, mm -hmm. So you as a patient need to log into multiple portals if you're getting your care in multiple un unaffiliated practices. One other side note that I'd say about the patient portals that's a nice thing is that I love that I can have access to both my daughter's record, my husband's record, my mom, my stepdad, everybody. And so if they can't do something or they're not feeling well, I can communicate on their behalf. And it's so nice to be able to have those, which is just another tool to help you fully care for the people that are in your life and communicate with the doctors. And that's my favorite thing to be able to email them because if I panic, I'm like, good, I can just email. <laughs> Great tool for caregivers, right? Well, and I want to make sure so that certainly we, we are at the dawn, just the dawn of the era of being able to see what's in our records. Uh, in the computers and being able to move that data around and share it. Uh, the, uh, it's very much analogous for people, for listeners who may be old enough to remember this. Uh, I was one of the early users, users of Quicken back in the 1990s, where you had to download a file from every bank and then read it into Quicken. Right, and it, so it took a lot of work and then things got more modernized where you could pull everything together all at once. And then they added the ability to have composite dashboards so you could get the whole picture. We are entering a period of five or 10 years or more of similar growth. And there will certainly be software products that are developed that are terrible and there will be ones that are great. But a generation from now, the world will be different in that regard. So when people complain about today's tools or whatever, I encourage people, dive in, start getting your feet wet. Um, but I also think it's important. What's happening with health IT in that regard is a whole different subject from what happened in my near fatal cancer. And I think every listener has a reason to understand how my being actively involved helped save my life with his help. 
I had a routine shoulder x-ray as part of my annual physical at the end of 2006. Uh, and I had a stiff shoulder. So Dr. Sand sent me to get an x-ray. Uh, and the very next day he called me and I remember this phone call. He said, your day, your shoulder's gonna be fine, but there's something in your lung. And this was total dumb luck, picture of my shoulder. Hey, guess what? There's a spot in your lung. And subsequent tests showed that it was kidney cancer that had spread all through my body. Uh, and so, and so by definition, that means stage four metastatic kidney cancer. And uh, there was at that time, no cure. There was only one thing that sometimes worked. They couldn't tell who it would work for. It usually didn't work and the side effects sometimes killed you. And it was only available in a few centers in the country. Exactly. Right? So um, would you like to cover the pivotal moment in our appointment there where you sent me in the right direction? So um, Dave you know, had a lot of testing going on where we're trying to figure out what this was and what we were gonna do and so on. And um, I sat him down and I said, look, Dave, you know, I know you're an online kind of guy and, uh, and you know, we've always had that as part of our, our, our relationship. And I said, one of the things I really want you to do is find, obviously find all the information that you can, but in addition to the sort of regular information that you could find on health websites, I'd like you to go to this online support community uh, that, that was called ACOR. And this was a community of communities. So there were 250 different cancer communities on ACOR. And one of them was specifically about kidney cancer. And, uh, and I, I actually prescribed this to Dave. I said, you know, check out ACOR because I think you're gonna learn some important things through that. So get this, the common thing that we hear about and all of us listening here have possibly heard this from different doctors is stay off the internet. The doctor says, I don't have time for that. Look what Dr. Sands did. He showed me where to find the good stuff. Mm -hmm. Now, which one is a more modern, up-to-date practitioner? And so what I did, I've been online since 1989, back on CompuServe with the desktop publishing forum as it was killing the graphic arts industry. The uh, so I went home and I, drew, I watched the conversation, so-called lurking for a couple of days in this community. And then I spoke up and introduced myself. And within the first two hours of me posting my first message, I got responses saying, welcome to the club that nobody wants to belong to. Now that might sound silly, but I'd never known anybody who had kidney cancer. And all I knew was that the statistics said I was probably gonna die. And here I am talking with people who got the diagnosis 10 years ago and weren't dead. This opened a war. See, there is more to healthcare than just diagnosing the cells, cells and prescribing a medicine, right? The, the, they said, uh, there's no sure cure, but there's this thing called high-dose interleukin-2 that sometimes works. It usually doesn't and sometimes the side effects kill you. Here are four doctors in your area who do it and their phone numbers. Now, ladies and gentlemen, 
All right, I'm an MIT graduate. I was raised to, to think scientifically. Uh, I didn't consider going outside of my hospital, but he recommended it. And the amazing thing now is that to this day, none of that that the patient community taught me exists in the scientific literature. It doesn't mean the scientific literature uh, is wrong. It just means there's additional value. And the, the punchline is, so here's me. So I was an activated patient and engaged patient when I sought out the kind of doctor I want, right? I was an activated, engaged patient when uh, I joined the community that Dr. Sands recommended. And so now I'm thinking as I approach the treatment, uh, and mind you, my median survival was 24 weeks from diagnosis. That's like bad. Uh, so here I am strapping myself in to go into this treatment. And I said to the oncology team, how do I prepare to survive the side effects? And here they are at one of the best cancer centers in the world for this disease. And they said, you know, nobody has ever asked us that. So this is one random engaged patient from the graphic arts industry asking a question. Uh, I'll say, by the way, in a five years later, in a follow-up visit, they, they said, we'd like to show you something. They had made a booklet how to deal with the side effects. So my hospital learned from the patient. That's participatory medicine. Uh, they had no answer, so I turned to the patient community and I got 16 firsthand stories from people who've been through it. And every time one of those side effects hit me, and one of them did almost kill me, well, every time one of those hit me, I knew what was going on and I was just better able to deal with it. And the punchline on this, and then I'd like Dr. Sen's thoughts on this. The punchline on this is that a few years later, the BMJ, the British Medical Journal, asked me to publish this story. I didn't go to them. They said, we think people need to know about this. So I turned right around and I said that doctors are gonna read this. I asked my oncologist, what would you want other doctors to know? about how this went. And he said, I'm not sure you could have tolerated enough medicine if you hadn't been so involved. On that, Dr. Sanz, did you yes. want to add something to this? Yeah, um, you know, I think that's, that, that's very important that we, so, so Dave and I went on to, to be a group of people that co-founded this nonprofit called the Society for Participatory Medicine. And we can talk, we should talk more about that in a, in yes. a little while, but, but part of this is understanding one another, respecting and understanding one another. Mm -hmm. and, 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 and so, so what Dave is telling you is, well, you know, first of all, I was able to respect Dave enough and understand he's an online guy. This is the kind of thing he'd like, prescribe him the information that he needs. Um, and, and, you know, I, I think Dave has, has learned a lot about understanding the healthcare system as well and understanding his, you know, his, his, me, you know, understanding me. So we talk often about patient centricity as if that it's all about the patient. And it is all about the patient. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying it's not. But at the same time, this is a duality. You know, we're a team, we're a partnership. I describe healthcare as a collaboration 
between the patient and the healthcare professional, not as a service industry. And, and in any collaboration, we want the two people to understand who they're collaborating with, right? That's in any collaboration in life. And, and, and so, you know, one of the things that is, is very important about this is that, yeah, we need to understand our patient's living environment, what, what's important to them, their values, um, their lives, their, their health conditions, of course, and all those things. But I think there's a part of this too that's important, which is that I think it helps when patients understand their healthcare system and their clinicians as well. And so, you know, Dave over the years has asked me a lot of questions. Well, you know, so what, what's your day like? You know, I noticed that you were late coming to see us. Why was that? And he's asked those kind of questions so that he sort of understands things. And when, when, when Dave, as, a, as, a, as an e-patient, you know, he, he doesn't come in and say, I demand this. I want, you know, I, I want you to do this. I'm the patient. I'm always right. He's, it's about the dialogue. It's about the conversation. It's about sharing in these, uh, uh, these discussions and the decision making. Um, but that means understanding my perspective as well. It is not about just my acceding to the patient's demands. That's not what participatory medicine is. It's about my listening to the patient and the patient listening to me and having a, a dialogue there. So whether it's the healthcare system learning from their patients like the Department of Oncology did in, in Dave's story, or it's individuals learning, you know, I've learned things in my I think I've changed my practice in some ways because of things I've learned from Dave and other patients like that. Um, but, but, you know, hopefully it goes the other way around too, that Dave is perhaps not necessarily Dave, but other e-patients are changing their behavior as they understand more about the limitations of the system and, uh, and the opportunities too. You both speak so eloquently, obviously, you know, it, it, uh, you, you've been through an amazing journey together and I'm so glad that the journey worked out so well for you, Dave, uh, and, uh, and you're now teaching other people. Uh, I think one thing that strikes me from what both of you are saying, you had said it at the outset, uh, Danny, is this is massive cultural change that you're trying to drive and societal change really ultimately that you're trying to drive. Uh, so Usually when we do that, I work as a consultant, as, as, as you probably know, and when we try to do that within an organization, there's a lot of training, there's a lot of tools, there's a lot of systems that you have to actually deliberately create and put people through some sort of a discipline process uh, to emerge from one type of a culture to another type of a culture. How does that emerge in this setting? Because I presume you can't quite do all of that. Maybe in the organizational setting, Dr. Sands can drive some of that at Beth Israel or some of the other organizations. Uh, but then the patients are part of much broader, right, global societal milieu. So is it just the ongoing messaging, uh, you know, that is it the communication? Is it shows like this? Do you, do you have thoughts on how that societal uh, aspect of change, you know, comes through? Yeah, well, I'll give you my answer and then I'll, I'm going to hear Dave's answer. Uh, I, you know, I think that certainly a, a huge part of culture change is education and it's, uh, it's also setting examples. So the challenge we're dealing with in healthcare is healthcare is set up to be resistant to change. You know, it, 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 it's been shown that it takes 17 years for an established best practice to permeate everyone's medical practice. Um, we are resistant to change. We are conservative, not in the political sense, conservative in what we do. We don't want to change. And it's hard. It's a busy system. We're running where, you know, you can't, uh, the, the metaphor people always use is that it's hard to um, rebuild the airplane while it's flying. Can't do that. 
And, and that's what happened is we're flying and all the different parts of healthcare are all sort of set up so that when there's a perturbation over here it adjusts over here and it's just a mess. And, um, and, and so we've got to do our best to do education at the organizational level and at the individual level and appealing to administrators, appealing to hearts and minds. But remember, we're also dealing on the provider side, that is the, uh, the, the, the doctors, the nurses, the clinicians, and the, uh, the people that deliver healthcare, I hate that term, deliver healthcare. On, on that side, it's very cash constrained. Uh, there's not high margins. And so it's very hard to do something different unless there's a business case for it. So that's why I, I think that changing hearts and minds and changing hearts and minds of clinicians early in the game, even before they're uh, established uh, clinicians is very, very important. And that's one of the things we try to do through, uh, avenue, uh, um, through um, forums like this and others, continuing medical education and so on. But at the same time, we need to be educating patients as well. And again, before they're patients, um, I'm involved in early stages in a conversation about doing a project to do just that, to start to get education into the middle schools, uh, where we're teaching people how to be educated healthcare consumers before they need to be healthcare consumers. Absolutely. And I, I think it's important, I want to go back and touch on the roots of what became the Society for Participatory Medicine. Because in fact, that origin back all the way back in the 1980s is, leads up to how he helped save my life. The, uh, there was a guy named Tom Ferguson who came out of Yale Medical School in 1978, I think. Uh, and he wrote a magazine and then a book called Medical Self-Care uh, where he uh, he, he knew that the vast majority of what you all and we all do is take care of ourselves at home. Aha, he's got one. Well, and he's, but he also knew that the vast majority of the, that, that when trouble hit like stage four kidney cancer, our ability to do anything useful was severely limited by access to information. And when the web came along, he saw that that would turn healthcare on its head. And he did a couple of things. One, well, Dr. Sands just pulled the book out, Health Online. He published this book in 1996, uh, including such things as how to get an email account, because you're going to need one. It was a guide to going out and finding information. And he started spotting people in the wild who were doing what he foresaw, all right? So this was in the 1990s. Uh, one of the things he saw was, hey, this doctor wrote an article on how to do email with patients without ruining your life. So he got in touch with Danny Sands. Another thing he saw was there was a guy in New York City named Jill Friedman who had started a network of cancer patient listservs, email lists, which became ACOR. And that's how Danny Sands knew Jill Friedman and knew about ACOR, which in 2007 helped save my life. The enormous change in the world at a higher level that's happened is it used to be before the internet that only people on the inside of these revered networks had access to information that mattered. 
And that is no longer true. So we really have approximately one century in all of human history. And I'm sure Dr. Sands will correct this if I'm a bit wrong. I don't think we've ever discussed this specifically, where doctors knew important things that patients did not know and could not know. And now as we got to the end of the 20th century, because of the internet and visionaries like Tom Ferguson, uh, we got to the point where it becomes possible for patients to know useful things also. And this doesn't mean we should ditch doctors. It just means we should all step up and do what we can to do our part. There are reasons why I wear digital things. A few years ago, Dr. Sands said, not in these words, but uh, dude, you're pre-diabetic. You got to do something about this. Uh, and I got out my Fitbit and I got into it. I, I just didn't want to become type two diabetic. And over the next year, I literally got off my butt and I started walking regularly. I, after a year, I became a runner. Ultimately, I lost 40 pounds and he got to send me an email saying, you're no longer pre-diabetic. One critical thing I think that you both mentioned, I just maybe want to make sure I got this right. Uh, I think I did is you were an e-patient long before your fatal, near fatal diagnosis of cancer came along. So you were already engaged, empowered, and seeking this form of participatory medicine. And that's what I think you're trying to bring as a message is that you're not, you're not waiting until a crisis comes along to become engaged and informed, correct? Can you maybe comment on that? <clears throat> In, we could go into details, but basically you're right. The time to buy a fire extinguisher and learn how to use it is not when there's smoke in the air. Mm. Right. And not only that, one, everybody should just make a point of looking at what information is in your medical record. 80% of medical records contain mistakes. Some of them are minor. Some of them are not. My mother had two potentially disastrous mistakes pop up in her record in the last five years. It's get started when there's not a crisis. Look and say, wait a minute, I never had that. I do have two questions related to what you just said, Dave. One is, so all these tools are now available. Yeah, I, I understand you're saying we're still at the dawn of this movement, you know, uh, 20, 30, 40 years in, depending on the time frame you're looking at. It still feels to both of you like we're at the beginning of something. Uh, but there's still a lot of tools already available. So what is it that prevents other patients from becoming e-patients? Because I think, unfortunately, from my interaction with most patients, I don't think they're that engaged or empowered uh, and, and maybe we've deliberately disempowered them, but I'd love to have your perspectives on that. That's one. And then maybe for Dr. Sands, a related question, which I'm almost even hesitant to ask Dr. Sands, uh, uh, is do we need e-doctors? I mean, do, are our doctors engaged and empowered enough to really drive all of this? So, so I, I mean, it's probably too much to ask at the end, but I'll, I'll, I'd love to have your thoughts on both parts of that, please. An important thing is that nobody is gonna, and this is just so fundamental in marketing. I don't know why the smart people in healthcare can't get this through their skulls, their highly educated skulls. Actually, I do know it's because it doesn't have anything to do with the freaking Krebs cycle, you know, which is what they were taught to think about, right? And diagnosis and pathology and all of that. Nobody is going to change their behavior on anything and start doing something new if they don't have a problem or there's something attractive about it. 
You know, if somebody, uh, people want convenience and the, I'm not making excuses, I'm just observing this as human behavior. Uh, and if somebody, if somebody doesn't really care what the answer to the question is, then that's fine, that's enough, just move along. But if you really wanna figure it out, you're gonna have to do some studying to understand what is in it for the patient, not in academic terms you can beat them over the head with, but in terms that they can hear and be interested in. This is why, by the way, I really encourage people to start thinking this way in pediatrics. When they're caring for their kids, their people tend to be engaged patients, right? Because they actually care. I'll hand it over now. So, so I think there is a mutuality to this, just like I talked about learning from the other person. Uh, when we created the Society for Participatory Medicine, we talked about the patient and the clinician both encouraging one another to become more engaged. Mm -hmm. So yeah, we do need e-doctors or e-healthcare professionals, whatever you want to call them. We absolutely do need that. And in fact, to, to, you know, to, to understand that mutuality in another way, uh, one of the things we did at, as a society uh, at our last conference is we did an pre-pandemic, pre but now we've finalized it and we're publicizing it, is we said, well, what does this look like? What are the key principles of how to make this happen? And how, are, how do they get reflected as a healthcare professional versus a patient or a caregiver? We, we developed a set of principles, share and listen, respect one another, share information responsibly, promote curiosity, and be a team builder. And then we said, well, what, you know, what, is this, what does this mean from a healthcare professional standpoint versus a patient caregiver standpoint? And, and so you know, if, if it's respect one another, it's respect patient perspective based on culture, upbringing, and circumstance, for example. And on the patient side, it's take the time to make sure I understand what my healthcare professionals are telling me. Uh, respect my loved one's wishes. All this stuff, there are a lot of ways that we can do that. And we do need e-patients and caregivers, and we do need e-healthcare professionals. Yes. And then that's why the education and the culture change becomes so important. And I want to say something else real quickly, if I can get this in, is that there is this assumption by those who haven't embraced this, that doing these things are going to make my life as a doctor worse, maybe my patient's lives a little better. And that is just patently false because clinicians who have embraced these ideals have found a much greater quality of life. Their work life is much better. And I think that's what's important. It's not, again, not letting patients run roughshod over you and, and, and do that. It's about working with them and it's much more fulfilling. So I really encourage you, uh, your, your listeners, your viewers to check this out. I, I, I forgot to, a few minutes ago to close the loop. All these people that Tom Ferguson found, you know, Jill Friedman, Danny Sands, and so on and so on, were the group that he mentioned at the beginning of the show uh, would get together in Texas every year. And they invited me to join them. Uh, and at that point, I changed. I'd been blogging as Patient Dave. I changed my name to ePatient Dave. Uh, and in 2009, at that annual gathering, they decided it was time to stop talking and they formed the society right then and there. Mm -hmm. 
Society for Participatory Medicine. So that's how those roots all the way back to the 1980s now lead up to the manifesto uh, today. And the crazy thing they did was they said, this medical society cannot be run just by a doctor. It has to be a doctor and a patient. And they looked around and pointed at us. And so we became the founding co-chairs of the Society for Participatory Medicine. I loved the inspiration story that you shared about your own treatment journey. I love Danny, how open you are to really engaging with these patients and just looking forward to everything that's coming. So thank you so much. And now when we share a speech, we close by singing a duet. You're not going to do that for your for the sake of your viewers. <laughs> do you really? Well, we do that. Yeah, we've written several doctor, songs. Doctor, doctor, give me the news. I got a bad taste <laughs> of the patient blues. <laughs> well, thank you guys for being here and thank all of you for watching. We'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. 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 Bye-bye.